0: So in 1995, May 1995, Randy Reed was a 34-year-old construction worker, and he was welding on top of a nearly completed water tower outside of Chicago. Um, And according to the news story, Reed unhooked his safety gear to reach for some pipes when a metal cage slipped and bumped the scaffolding that he stood on. The scaffolding tipped, and Reed lost his balance, and he fell 110 feet um, to land face down on a pile of dirt, barely missing rocks and construction debris. A uh, co-worker, of course, called 911, as you do when someone falls 110 feet off of a water tower. And paramedics arrived, and when they got there, they found that he was conscious, he was moving, and he was complaining just of a sore back. Like, oh, my back's sore. I, I bet it is. I bet your back is sore after falling 110 feet. But they, they put him on a backboard, you know, and carried him to the ambulance. And the fall did not make him lose his sense of humor because as the paramedics were carrying him to the ambulance on the backboard, Reed had one request, which was this, don't drop me. <laughs> Doctors later said that Reed came away from the accident with just a bruised lung. Uh, I'm telling you this story because there's a connection to the sermon, and it's this. We, we have been saved. Um, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, you've been saved from peril. You've been saved from, uh, you've been rescued by Jesus through his work on the cross. Scripture talks about justification through faith, meaning that we, we can have, we can be made right before God. We can have our biggest problem in the universe solved by being made right before God, by trusting in him. And saying, God, I want to receive the gift that you've given me. And the biggest problem that we have, the biggest problem that you'll ever have, is solved in that moment. And then we sometimes have, that that we have this kind of same mindset. He was joking when he said it, but we say it seriously. We're like, God, don't drop me. You know, he saved us from this great fall, but we've got other problems that we're facing. And they're, they're more like the three feet off the ground problems than the 110 feet off the ground problems. And God solved our 110 feet off the ground problem. But we're like being carried by God through this life and we're saying, God, don't drop me. God, don't drop me. And if we understand what Jesus has done for us, what has been accomplished for us already, we will be ready to face just about any challenge, trusting that the God that solved that ultimate problem can solve the much smaller scale problems that we face. The Apostle Paul is working us through this idea of justification by faith. And, and this is, this is core to the, to the study that we're doing right now in the book of Romans. Um, we're going through the book of Romans all summer long. We're subtitling it, Grace Changes Everything. And the, the big idea, we're, we're right in the heart of the message of the book of Romans at this point. We're going to be in Romans chapter 4 um, in just a few moments. And in fact, we'll back up to Romans 3, the last few verses of Romans 3, just so we have a sense of our context. But the heart of the book of Romans is this statement Justification by grace through faith, and I know if you're new to Christianity, you're new to faith, you're new to studying the Bible. There, there's a lot of terms there that you might like, vocabulary words that you feel like you may not have a, a grasp on. But we talked last week about this idea of justification that we are—it's—it's it's a courtroom word. It's this idea of being being made right before God. Paul in Romans one through three chapters 1 through 3, has been building this case for us of understanding just how serious a problem humanity has when it comes to sin, that we all stand before God condemned, every single one of us. None of us is righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in a pickle, were it not, for what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That Jesus came and in one moment gave his life for us, lived a perfect, sinless life, and then died the death that we deserve and there's this gift offered by Jesus which is that we can have we can be made right with God we can be given the record of Jesus placed on our record and be justified by God and we don't have to do anything but receive it we receive it by grace through faith grace means it's a gift and faith is the way that we receive it and there's nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it we simply receive it and this is core to what the Apostle Paul is teaching us in the book of Romans. The instructions that come later about how we live this out and what difference it makes in our life, they all hinge on this idea. So it's important that we understand it. Now, we're going to go pretty deep here for a little bit. And I, I want you to track with me. I promise to try to make this as accessible as possible, I'll give you some handles to hold on to with the text. But there's a lot of concepts that we're about to wade through together. And then we're going to spend a little more time focusing on the second half of chapter four. Because I think there's a lot of interesting insights for us about what faith means, how faith works, what difference faith makes in our lives. But before we get there, we're going to be in Romans three twenty-seven to thirty-one. We're going to go all the way through chapter four this morning as well, and and kind of buckle up because we'll be you know put your thinking hats on, like your teacher would say, when you were in elementary school, your thinking cap, I guess. Um, so before we get there, let me intro it this way. This is the key idea of Romans, that justification is a gift that we receive by faith. And there's a question that the listeners of this letter, when it was read aloud in the church, might have had at this point. Because this church was divided up between the kind of Jewish background people and the Gentile people with no you know, Jewish background, and there was a little bit of tension between these two groups. And Paul was constantly battling through his ministry the, the people that would say, if you want to become a follower of Jesus, that's great, but you have to become a Jew in addition to becoming a follower of Jesus. You need to obey the law. You need to be circumcised. You need to go through all of these things. And, and, and this is part of being a Jewish person is that you view G- Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul was saying, no, that's not how it works. Those are works. You're describing a works relationship with the, heavenly, with the holy God. You need this grace through faith, justification. And so the Jewish listeners of this original message might have been thinking, hey, is there any precedent for this? If this is true what you're saying, Paul, surely Abraham would have said something about this. Surely this would have shown up in the Old Covenant, in the the story of our people. This idea would be there somehow if what you were saying is true. And Paul goes on to make that case in Romans chapter 4 by talking about the father of uh, the Jewish people, the Abraham. And he'll talk about the life of Abraham and how Abraham's life and the way Abraham related to God forecasts the way we relate to God as followers of Christ today and during Paul's time as well. There's a story in after one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus or during one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus in Luke 24. Jesus is walking with these two people. We're given the name of one of them but not the other There was a guy named Cleopas and another unnamed disciple that were walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't recognize that it was Jesus at first. And Jesus is walking with them, and they're both just dejected and sad about what happened with Jesus. And Jesus shows up, and he's talking with them about, hey, what are you talking about? And they said, how could you be one of the only visitors to Jerusalem and not know the events that have taken place here recently? Jesus has come, and and, and we believed he was the Messiah, but then they put him to death. And we heard rumors about someone seeing him resurrected, but we, we just don't know what to think. And Jesus begins walking with them and talking. And before they even recognize who Jesus is, Jesus is, uh, he says to them, and this is Luke 24, 25 to 27, he said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus walked them through the Old Testament and said, uh, this was forecasted. What would happen about Jesus was previewed in the Old Testament. And he's pointing out kind of bit by bit as they're walking down the road why this was predicted, why this needed to happen, why this was part of the plan from the very beginning. So they're having a Bible study with Jesus, not realizing that they're with Jesus. And I always, when I have read this passage originally, I used to think, man, I wish someone would have written all that down, recorded it all, so we could hear exactly how Jesus was talking through the Old Testament. And I've realized in, in, in recent years that likely they did, likely they repeated this over and over again amongst themselves. And this was included in things like Romans, what we're about to read, but also some of the other letters written by the apostles. That of course they remembered these things, and they included these details and the connections that Jesus made as they began to explain what Jesus had done for his people. So with that in mind, let's jump into Romans chapter 3. We're going to read four verses in Romans 3 just for some context, and then we're going to keep going down to Romans 4, 1 through 12. And again, buckle up, get ready for this, try to follow the argument, and I'll try to explain what we what we need to take out of this passage. And if you get lost at any point as we're walking through the weeds, don't feel bad because I did too all week getting ready for this message. I was listening to different translations of the Bible trying to make sure I wrap my head around it and I feel like I've got it. But don't feel bad if you don't uh, understand it the first time we read through it this morning. Okay, verse 27 of chapter three. Then what becomes of our boasting? He's just been talking about justification by faith and then he raises this question. What becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I've just said the word circumcised quite a few times this morning. Um, let's, we'll talk about what we see there. So the issue is justification, right? Being made right before God is the issue. And I said last week that this is a courtroom word. This is a word that would talk about, is someone innocent or guilty before the judge? And he's picking up from last week, you're you're made just just as if you'd never sinned, which is our little shorthand to remember justified, but it's actually more than that too. Justified is just as if I'd never sinned. But more than that, you're given the record of Jesus, given the spotless, blemish-free record of Jesus Christ applied to our account. And Paul, in making his case for why this makes sense in the history of the interaction between the people of God and God, He calls two witnesses to the stand in this courtroom. He calls Abraham and he calls David. And he says, If Abraham was justified by his works, he could just stand there before God boasting, Hey, look at my amazing record. I've never committed any sins, perfect and sinless. And he says, No, not before God. No one can stand like that. Was he justified by his works? And the scripture says that, no, he, he quotes this story in Genesis 15 and he goes back to the story of the life of Abraham, which is just woven into the history of the people of God back in you know, the Jewish times and the Israelites and the way that they interacted with, with God, that this is a man called out of a pagan country. And God calls him and just kind of snatches him out of this place where the, everyone just around him worshiped false gods and God picked him to, to come to a new place. And he calls him out And he travels not knowing where he's going. He just starts the journey, trusting this God that's called him. And God says, I'm going to make of you a great nation, Abraham and his wife Sarah. And I'm uh, going to, the nation will be so great, it will be a blessing to the other nations. From your family will come a great nation. And that nation will bless other nations. Genesis 15 tells us the story that Paul quotes here. He says, Abraham believed God and it, counted, it was counted to him as righteousness. And this comes from Genesis chapter 15. This is a story that takes place after a battle that Abraham had between all these ancient kings and Abram and, and all of his servants. They went to battle with these ancient kings. And it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless in the heir of my house, as Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, "Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir." And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, "This man shall not be your heir; your very own son shall be your heir." And he brought him outside and said, "Look toward heaven, and number the stars, if you are able to number them." Then he said to them, to him, "So shall your offspring be." And here's our key phrase. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God made a promise to Abram, who later would have his name changed to Abraham, and said, I want you to go off. I'm going to give you a, a new country, a new land. You will be a new nation. I want to teach you how to follow me. And here's the promise. And then Abram has this promise he's holding on to. That there will be a great nation, but he has no children. And we're told the, the problem is that they are unable to have children. And Abraham is, is aging beyond the, the years of childbirth as, as his wife is beyond the years of childbirth. And um, as they go on, he's like, how's God going to fulfill this promise? He's not sure how this is going to work. He's got an heir who's a member of his household, one of his servants or something, Eleazar of Damascus, who's going to inherit everything Abraham has. And God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Look to the stars. Can you count them all? No, there's a lot of them. So shall your offspring be. From you will come this great nation. And this is the story of Abraham. Um, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul takes this phrase, counted to him as righteousness, and he repeats it over and over again in this passage. He's saying this is the the prototype of justification by faith. And and he uses sort of, he's kind of blending these ideas together. The justification is a courtroom word. Counted to him as righteousness is more of an accounting idea. It's placed in your account. Righteousness was placed on your account because you believed God. The next person called to the stand in this story is David. David. And he quotes in Psalm four a couple of verses out of psalm, or out of, in, in Romans four, a couple of verses out of Psalm 32, which is a psalm that David wrote about God forgiving him of this dark moment in his life. God, God forgave him of these sins that he committed, adultery that ended up leading to this plot, where, where his friend and one of his mighty men, who were one of his soldiers, was murdered to cover up David's sin. And then David was unrepentant for a while and they needed to be called into account by Nathan the prophet who said, you've sinned in this way. And David repents and he turns back to God. And then he writes this psalm, Psalm 32, about the, the graciousness of God to not hold people's sins against them. And then he uses this word counted as well. That blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul's saying, once again, back there, there's a preview of how God is going to work This salvation out and account righteousness towards people who should have only sin in their record. And then he talks about circumcision a whole bunch, right? We talked about that. And by the way, I gotta tell you here um, that um, downstairs in our kids' ministry, they're studying the same passage of scripture this morning. And my wife pulled me aside this morning and she goes, How are you gonna talk about that part of the scripture? And I was like, well, I'm not really going to talk about that part of the scripture. I'm kind of just going to, I want to talk about the main point, but they're like, what if the kids ask questions about what, you know, I said, I would just make it, here's the main point, and here's the main point for you, here's the main point for them downstairs. Circumcision was a sign of the promise that God had made towards his people, and we'll leave it there. Um, It's a sign and a symbol, but the point that Paul is making is not circumcision, it's the point is that this sign of the promise that was given to the people of Israel or to the, Abraham's descendants and Abraham himself was given after. So this work of the law, so to speak, that would be a sign of the covenant that God made with his people, that, that this him trusting God and accounting to him as righteousness happened far before this sign was ever given. That's the point Paul's making here, which means that Abraham is not just the father of the Jewish people, but he's the father of anyone who comes to faith in Christ. And so here's where we sing the song together, Father Abraham had many sons, right? Well, let's all stand up. I'm just kidding. Let's not do that. But this is the idea. Abraham as our father is, is this concept that Abraham's experience is a lot like our experience. He's our, our father in the sense, not being like physically descended from him for us Gentiles in the room, but but being the, the father of the faith, that his life and the lessons we see from his life have a lot to teach us in our experience today. And the way we relate to God is the same as what Abraham experienced. We get to be justified by faith. Now, we were, we're, we've kind of waded through some really tough concepts this morning already, we're going to read verses 13 to 25 right to the end of chapter 4 and I think there's some really important concepts for us to understand. I think this next section will be very applicable to each of us in this room and so we'll we'll focus the rest of our time on verses 13 to 25. I've got three points about faith that I want us to see in this passage that we'll get to, but we'll start by reading it. Verses 13 to 25 of chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for for our justification. So three things we learn about faith from the verses we just read here. The first is a simple definition of faith. Faith is belief in the promise of God. That's what faith is at its basic level. Belief in the promise of God. God has made promises to us regarding salvation, regarding his plans for us, and faith is simply holding on to those promises and believing them. We're, this is illustrated in, in Abraham's life again that he had many obstacles to his belief in the promise of God that he would have these, this heir, that he, he would be given a son. When he were far past the age of thinking about children, he's holding on to this belief in God's promise. The word promise is all over this passage. It's in verse 13, 14, 16, 20, and in 21. It's just all over the place. That there's a promise that's been made. And he's believing in that and holding on to it. There are going to be times when faith doesn't, you, you, can't, you can't totally rationalize your way around faith. To, to seeing how God's going to keep his promise. But that's actually not your problem. It's God's problem to figure out. Our, our job is to hold on to our belief in him. And our, our trust in him when it doesn't always make sense, when we can't always wrap our minds around how he's going to solve it. Now, I want to make a distinction here because some people put faith, they kind of pit faith between faith and reason. They go, I'm one of these reasonable people, I've got to, you know, figure things out logically and be able to wrap my mind around something before I can believe it. And then those people that are faith people, they just believe anything. And that, that's, that's not the case. And in fact, sometimes people try to pit faith and science against each other. Did you know that the scientific method and like the earlier, early scientists, many of them, maybe most of them were believers? They believed that a God, God created an orderly universe that could be studied, and they developed tools and rules about how they would study the order of the creator. And, and this led to the development of the scientific method. Um, People of faith are not people who believe anything, right? We we need to be rational people, but it's more like this idea that we see where the sign is pointing. It's like things are pointing this direction, and I don't know exactly what is on the road between where this sign is and my ultimate destination, but I believe that God has sent me this direction. I have faith in him. I don't know exactly how he's going to work all this out, but I know that I can trust him. I can trust his character. I can trust who he is. I can trust that it's his job to figure out the details. I can see which direction the sign's pointing without having all the evidence about the road to get where the sign is pointing. Because what matters more about faith is not necessarily the the quality of the faith that we're able to muster up, but the object of our faith. What we trust in matters more than how much trust we can somehow muster up. Which is the second idea here that we're going to talk about with faith. The object of your faith matters more than the quality of the faith that you are able to muster up. Abraham is presented frequently in the New Testament, including in this passage, as a model for faith. Well, if you want to see like the Hall of Fame for faith people, it's like Abraham's jersey is retired, you know, at the top of the rafters as one of the great people of faith. In Hebrews 11, he's mentioned, I mean, he's in this glowing report about Abraham's life that, man, Abraham was called out from God. He didn't know where he was going, didn't know how God was going to figure all these things out, but he had this promise from God, and he went, and he greeted these promises from God afar and, and trusted and kept going, and he is held up as this model of faith. But if you study the life of Abraham, boy you seem like he really messed up a lot of times for someone that had such great faith, right? His is the whole time where he pretends that Sarah is not his wife because he's afraid that someone's going to take her from him and his life would be in danger if people knew that Sarah was his wife. They're like, well, let's get rid of the husband. And so he has this lie that he comes up with to protect Sarah and himself rather than trusting in God to deliver him. He says, just pretend that you're, you know, my sister or whatever. And and this you know, ends up causing all these problems, these lies that, that he's, he's making. There, there's this whole plot about him and it, the, his attempt to help God fulfill his promise by, by um, being with Sarah's maid instead of Sarah to have children with her instead of with Sarah. And, and his faith is so weak that, that he's, he laugh, laughs at the promise of God, right? Both him and Sarah kind of laugh when they're told that they're going to be having a descendant, even though been, they've been told before that he'd be the father of a great nation, There's this moment where they're kind of like, I don't know how you're going to do that. We're way past the age where that happens. But he's still held up as this model for us of faith. There's something about, he held on to something imperfectly. But what he held on to, he held on to so strongly. The object of his faith mattered more than the quality of his faith. That the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that are not as though they do exist. These are words from Romans 4. I love my favorite part of this whole chapter. But I've lost it, so it's in here somewhere. Oh, it's, yeah, verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist we might feel like we don't have enough faith. We all feel like that, I think, if we're being really honest with ourselves. It's like, man, I have some faith, but I really feel like I need a lot more if I'm gonna do this, live this life successfully. And, and that's actually a good place to be as far as being honest about that because the, the one who helps us with that is the God, the object of our faith. And, and I think we're given Abraham as this imperfect model that's still held up as, as just an amazing example of faith To show us that the hero of the story is not Abraham, it's God. And if we trust in God, even imperfectly, that's enough. I traveled to Europe last fall. I got to go to England with my son and my niece. And we we went to England by way of Iceland. Stopped in Iceland for 24 hours and then went over to England and if I was preparing for that trip, there's a couple of ways I could have done that. I could have bought a plane ticket or I could have constructed a flying apparatus of my own. Some cardboard, maybe some wings, you know, or some some feathers from birds that I found around, you know, and tried to put together a harness and like I'm going to and and then I could have had all kinds of confidence in myself too. Like I'm this is going to work out for me. And try to go up to a high platform or something and get ready to just jump and to start flapping my arms. And I could have all the faith in the world in my ability to fly myself over to Europe, and uh, it wouldn't work out. Right? We know that. I, I wouldn't make it there. Alternatively, I'm not scared of flying, but alternatively, I could have been terrified to fly. And I got the plane ticket and trembling, walked on the airplane and sat on the plane, no, almost no trust in the plane to get me there. Just like, I have enough faith to sit in this chair and trust that the airplane's going to get me to where I need to go. And I could be scared the entire time. And that little bit of faith in the right thing would have got me to Europe, as opposed to all the faith in the world in the wrong thing that wouldn't have got me anywhere. It's similar in our, our life with Jesus, that that little bit of imperfect faith given to Jesus and saying, here, here take this, this is what I've got. I I don't have it all figured out, but you you can do something with this. And so I'm trusting you. This is where we need to be. But we don't have to stay there. We can grow in our faith. And um, we're told in verse 20 that uh, Abraham did that. That Abraham got, it says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He grew strong in his faith. We need faith. We need more faith. We we need to trust God more tomorrow than we do today and continue growing, continue developing. This is how we live the life on this side of heaven is by trusting in Jesus and trusting that he can carry us through our difficulties, that we we can grow in our faith. Scripture tells us that we walk by faith, not by sight. And if you need more faith, it says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That there's this idea that being around God's word, experiencing God's word, understanding the faithfulness of God in the past helps us trust that he will be faithful in the future. And one of the things we read about when we consider God's faithfulness in the past is the resurrection. And this is where the story, the passage that we just studied ended. Well, it says the God that can call, gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And then in verse 24 and 25, it says, these words were written for our sake also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification? This phrase here is so powerful in verse 25 because Paul's been talking about justification and what it means to be made righteous before God. And he says, Jesus was delivered up to the cross for our trespasses. He, He died the death that we deserved, but he was raised for our justification. He's saying the way the, way the resurrection worked, it, it was that God's put a stamp of approval on what Jesus did because of the resurrection. He's saying the resurrection means God accepted the payment so that anybody who, could come, anybody who would want to come to Jesus could be counted righteous just like Abraham was. And again, it's not just that we're given a blank slate, but we're given the righteousness of Jesus. And understanding this as a gift makes all the difference in our lives as opposed to something that we earn or deserve. Paul's making this point over and over again. You cannot work to earn this. You simply need to receive it. If you could somehow work enough to, to receive salvation, you'd always be wondering if you did work enough or like if you could stay saved. You know, it's like I, I, I understand Jesus died for me. He offers salvation, but can I, did, it, did I do enough to keep it? Did I do enough to save it? Like we, This is a gift. It's not a reward you earned, it's not a paycheck, it's a gift from God. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says this about faith, which I, I I love this statement. A little faith will bring your soul to heaven. A great faith will bring heaven to your soul. We talked about this idea at the beginning of, you know, Jesus solved our big problem so we can trust him with the small stuff. If God can handle your eternity, surely he can handle your life right? If God God solved your biggest problem, he can handle the much smaller scale problems that we face every single day. I think the more we understand, the more we're grateful for this idea of justification by grace through faith, the more we just trust God in general. We need more faith. We need to grow in our faith. We need to trust God more and, and learn to live that out. Walk by faith, not by sight. And let's pray right now and ask God to help us with that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, we thank you for this time of considering together the story of Abraham, the story of David, Lord, the the witnesses called called to the stand, so to speak, to help us understand these deep concepts that the Apostle Paul is calling our attention to. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to to know these truths firsthand, um, first of all, and then to live them out, to let it inform our day-to-day life with you. And Lord, I pray for anybody in this room right now who has yet to receive that gift of salvation that you offer. Lord, call them to yourself right now. Help people to say, I I want that. I, I want to be counted righteous before God. And Lord, help those hearts, help those people, Lord, to turn to you right in this moment and receive your free gift of salvation. And Lord, for all of us who are beneficiaries already of this amazing gift, Lord, may we trust you more. I thank you for the example of Abraham's life, held up as an example of faith, even though his life was so far from perfect. Lord, you used him to be the father of, you know, the nation of Israel, the father of all of, all of us. That the way he related to you teaches us how we can relate to you as well. And Lord, we need you more. We need to trust you more. We need to face our difficulties knowing that, that you who solved our eternal problem can solve our small problems in every problem we have is small in comparison to that problem. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, we thank you for the songs, too, that we've been singing this morning that remind us of these eternal truths. Um, Lord, we, we sing these truths into our hearts. or these, these truths help us, to, um, help us to live our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to you and worship one more time this morning, that you would help these truths to settle in this morning where they need to be, Use the proclamation of your word and use the songs that we sing to drive that truth deeper into our hearts, to help us face the difficulties we might be facing, to know that you are a good God, you have good plans, your promises can be trusted. And so we want to come humbly before you right now in worship and say that we trust you. We love you, we thank you, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.